Hello everybody and welcome again to another Football Ruin My Life podcast. I'm Colin Schindler and joining me today, as ever, are my friends and fellow septuagenarians, Patrick Barclay. Good afternoon, yes, cracking on for 80 now. And <laughs> joining us too is John Holmes. The very youthful. <laughs> Comparatively speaking. And today we're going to be talking about something that has actually intrigued me for some considerable time, which is the role of crowds at football matches. So, John, let me start with you. We'd always talked about how wonderful it was as little kids to be taken by grown-ups to go to football matches and to be in awe of the crowd and to love its warmth and its embrace, being lost in that swirl of sound. Is that still true for you when you go up the steps? It's not true in the same way for me. But what I do think is it's still true for kids. I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to facilitate my next door neighbour to take his son to the championship playoff final featured Nottingham Forest not so long ago. It was the boys' first football match and it came back and, of course, his father said he didn't watch the football at all. He watched the crowd. He loved it. He was six, seven years old and I think that's pretty much how it was for all of us. It's a completely unique experience at that time. So that remains. If anything, crowds are bigger, they're possibly noisier. The biggest change is nobody wears hats any longer. Mm. If we look back to before our time, look at the pictures of crowds in the 1930s, and they all wore flat caps, didn't mm. they? But nowadays, they wear the gear, of course. They wear the kit, and it's important to a lot of them that they wear the kit. So visually, it's changed a great deal. I still think the atmosphere is what it is. The nature of the chanting and shouting is different. When I first started, people went on about club songs. Birmingham fans mm. sang... Keep right on the end of the road. And Norwich City fans sang On the Ball City. And people talked about club songs. And then, during the 60s, chanting started. My football fandom comes into three very distinct sections. Of course, I had a a 40-year hiatus while I was away being a football writer. So my Saturdays weren't free to be a fan. The first one was, as a child growing up, and then as a young teenager in Dundee, watching Dundee Football Club. And then there was the Manchester period as an adult all through my 20s. And it wasn't until I was about 29 that I worked professionally on the edges of football. And then the third period is the one I'm in now. And it's absolutely wonderful as a season ticket holder at Fulham and also a season ticket holder at Dundee who doesn't see many games. So it is all very different. But the one thing it's got in common is that my favourite part of it is the crowd. My first experience was falling in love with the sound of a crowd. And if I had to say one way in which football has got much, much worse in the modern period is that they won't leave the bloody crowd alone. I remember when Wembley Stadium was rebuilt and they had some pillock who's, I think, still there saying, hey, we're here, it's the 14th of May, 1996, it's the FA Cup final. Well, if there was anybody in that bloody crowd who didn't know they'd gone there to watch the <laughs> Cup final, then God help them. We're told when to 
cheer. We're told when to get excited. We're bombarded, drowned by music as they are now. I can remember once being at Celtic at Parkhead, probably about 30 years ago. I remember Davy Proven was playing on the right wing for Celtic and Tommy Burns was playing. And I swear the crowd played because they would gently coax Tommy Burns to make a long ball inside the fullback with his left foot. They would chide the players if they made a mistake. They wouldn't bollock them. They wouldn't go, ah, oh, nah. They would just say, oh, come on, come on. When the crowd noise is actually running a game, I've always maintained it's the best thing about British football. You can stand outside a ground and you can listen to those noises and you can tell outside the ground what's hit the post or hit the crossbar and what's gone That's in. That's right. It's a completely different sound. There are two roars that are the same. One's a goal and one's a referee making a bad decision. One's shorter than the other, but both almost the same volume. It's extraordinary. And yes, being outside a ground and reading the game like Collins just described is one of the most glorious yet unbelievably frustrating experiences that football throws at you. I hope this isn't a bit too fruity a way of putting it, but do you know when you're in a hotel room and there's a couple in the next room <laughs> enjoying each other and it makes a noise that for me is better than any sex I've ever had. I don't know and if I you've think... got a glass to the wall, Paddy. No, 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 that ruins it apparently. <laughs> Certainly for the couple on the other side. But but the noise of a goal being scored when you've just left the ground. Yes. Or you're yeah, just I... arriving at the ground. Yes, that, that's is a is a more guttural, visceral roar than you ever get when you're inside. It's amazing. John in your opinion, does the shift between three sides of the ground that used to be standing becoming all sitting, has that changed? There was usually one main stand where there were seats that you paid extra for, and the other three sides of the ground, you were standing up on the terraces. I'm not sure that's made much of a difference. I think it's pretty much the same. Mainly it was about behaviour, wasn't it, to try and stop also the sway of the crowd and it being dangerous and so on. I personally find this move back to bringing in standing enclosures, it's never anything that's particularly appealed to me, but I can understand if you're younger and that sort of thing, it's the sense of swaying together and so on and jumping around. But the difference is in the connection, isn't there, between the crowd and the way the crowd connects with the play now. Chanting came in, first of all, and then there came noise, and then there came, of course, the cops sort of started at the wit of the crowd. Mm. I particularly remember the Liverpool crowd chanting when a very tall centre-forward came on for Derby, and the Liverpool crowd immediately chanting, there's only one Eiffel Tower. Yeah. <laughs> and their careless hands when Gary Sprake threw it in the yeah. net. I liked when Fulham were, were a little club. There was one when Al Fayed was the owner. And at that time, you know, he'd had a long standing grudge that he hadn't been given UK citizenship. And to the tune of uh, Volari, it was Al Fayed, oh, Al Fayed, oh, he wants to be a Brit and QPR are shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> what I liked about that, it's such bad dog roll that it's funny. There's a lot that are verging on the bad taste. The other one was when 
Man United had, was it Pat Duick, the Korean striker? And it was, he's here, he'll score, he'll eat your Labrador. You see, you see that, would, that wouldn't be considered funny, no, no it would time it. It certainly wouldn't. The other one, which was beloved of, I believe, Scunthorpe fans and then Southampton fans, was because Nigel Atkins, who was a manager, had become the manager after being the physio. And they said, who needs Mourinho? We've got our physio. <laughs> Very good. I think just on a point of order, John, Pak Duick was the North Korean who scored the goal against Italy in the 66 World Cup. Yeah, what Cup. was the name pa- of the His Man name United was Park. Korean he was called Park, Park something or other. Jisung uh, Park. Jisung uh, Park, yes. And then, see, that was only, what, 15, 20 years ago yes. at most. And public tastes and mores have, have changed so much. John has picked up that image of the sort of Peaky Blinders crowd of everybody in, in those flat caps. And we know from Roy Keane's helpful memorandum that there's now a tendency towards prawn sandwiches. Mm. That's obviously taking two extreme examples. But has there genuinely been a significant gentrification of football crowds, Paddy? I think they're much better dressed in the flat cap days than they are now. (laughs) Much. I mean, fat people in replica strips. I mean, God almighty, it looks horrible. It really looks horrible. Football crowds are the ugliest people in the world. That is for absolute sure. Mind you, if you go to Barcelona or Real Madrid, it's completely different. They're not like that there, but but our football crowds are... Well, I was pushing for the class nature of the observation rather than the the sartorial nature of the observation. I think that applies to society as a whole, that it's moved. But football, when we started watching, was by and large a working-class game. The middle class sort of looked on it with a patronising... glance but mostly they went to rugby you know this old image of rugby being a a hooligans game playing by gentlemen. I was wondering when you'd get round to that one. My partner Catherine sent me something to to the effect of football is 90 minutes of men pretending to be hurt. Yeah. Rugby is 80 minutes of men pretending not to be hurt. Oh brilliant. I I, thought that that had some point to it. I don't know why you bother inviting us. You should just record your conversations with her. They're much cleverer. Yeah, that's one of the very few, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) The crowds have changed in terms of size too. I mean, I'm constantly surprised when I go back and I look at City results and crowds of the 1960s and 70s when we were a good side and we would get just about late 30s, early 40s, Mm. you know, in a ground that held 64,000. So crowds have grown, haven't they? They've grown, but they've grown unevenly. I mean, what's the capacity of Leicester City's ground? Now, 33. 33. Now, my guess would be that Leicester City's lowest crowd of the season will be 32, and their highest crowd of the season will be 33. The same 32,500 people will watch every home game at Leicester or their proxies. However... It used to be wildly variable. I mean, I've just looked up the figures for 1967-8, which was a great season in the city of Manchester where I was a fan until the last day of the season. They didn't know whether United or City were going to win the league. City did. And United had the remarkable consolation of being champions of Europe for the first time as an English club, all in the same week. So that was wonderful. But I looked at City's crowds during that season. And their first home league gate was Man City against Liverpool. Nil-nil. And the attendance was... Do you know the attendance, Colin, for that game? I bet it was about 38,000, something like that. 49,531. Bigger than that. A fortnight later, they played their next home match. It was against Southampton. 
How much was it against Southampton? 28,000. 22. Well, so fewer yeah. than half yeah. of those people yeah. came yeah. back for the next game. The clouds continued to fluctuate, perhaps not to that degree, but there were crowds over 60,000, notably for Manchester United, of course, of course, the Derby. And the average for the season was 37,190. That's exactly what I was saying. People in those days couldn't afford season tickets and neither were season tickets marketed. If I was being cynical, I would say neither did the directors want the money all to come in at one rush in the form of checks because that would have to go in the bank. They prefer the turnstiles and the cash to come in. It's also a fact that it was a more working class audience who couldn't afford it. You used to as well. And I remember you being in the town and, you know, knocking about on a Saturday morning with your mates and you would say, are you going to come to the game? Yeah, I might. You could go down, walk in. When I was at university, we decided in the pub at lunchtime whether we might go to Huddersfield or Burnley or Bradford or Sheffield that night to watch a Mm. match. You could decide at the last minute there was nothing like the palaver that there was because there were only a very small percentage bought season. But no one blamed you for that then. If a middle-class boy now told you, "Eh, you know, I might go to watch the arse tomorrow, if I feel like it, I'll go, you'd think, typical new fan. I mean, I go to every game. I'm a proper fan. But there wasn't that kind of judgmental. If you lived in London, say, or in my case, Manchester, when you had a choice, I would go to Man United one week and City. In fact, I did. I went and saw Law Best and Charlton one week and Lee Bell and Summerby the next. And my God, I felt, I actually, no, I didn't feel privileged because I thought everybody had this. Now, looking back on it, How privileged was I? One of the many complaints I have received when I wrote my books on City was exactly that, that I owned up to quite happily going to watch United because my brother had a season ticket, but he was away at university. And so he gave me his United season ticket to watch in the weeks when City were playing away and I couldn't afford to follow them anywhere. And it would be natural course of events in the 60s. But by the time the 90s came around and I revealed this to me unremarkable fact, it produced the most astonishing vituperation. I was I was most surprised, rather hurt by it. Yes. It seemed if you loved football, of course you'd watch Lord Best and Charlton. You would want them to lose, but you'd go and watch them. Mm. So football has become more tribal. Oh, without a Again, it's that. television that did it. Now, we've seen all of those players, haven't we? In those days, if Jimmy Greaves was playing Nottingham, I only got the chance to watch Jimmy Greaves once, as I was taken by my uncle wants as a Christmas tree to see Jimmy Greaves play because I wouldn't get other chances to see him play. You know, I can remember specifically going to Burnley one night because they were playing Swindon and I wanted to see what all the fuss about Don Rogers was. Mm. Paddy, do you feel that the, the tribal nature of football has become significantly increased? With one, I mean, I grew up in Scotland and there is and never has been a more tribal rivalry than the Glasgow one between Rangers and Celtic. And yet, when the European Cup final, the Champions League final of 1960, was awarded to Glasgow, the walk-up crowd of people who had no 
allegiance to Real Madrid or Eintracht Frankfurt was 135,000. But you see, these players though, who played for Real Madrid at that time, you know, Pushkas, Hento, Di Stefano, they were exotic. I mean, they were like Australian cricketers. That's absolutely true. We'd heard about them, we never saw them. So you can understand why people would would be desperate to go and see that from whatever side of Glasgow. Yeah, there was just it was just a, a, an unbelievable festival of football and something that we probably don't get now because we can turn on our televisions, we can watch Lionel Messi and if he's past his peak as he might be now, well, we can call up a game when he was at his peak playing for Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. So we can have anything and we can have it anytime we want now. John, do you think that the way the Premier League operates in giving tickets to a very limited number to away supporters also has affected the nature of crowds at Premier League games? Well, first of all, we travel more to games, don't we? First of all, travel was more expensive in those days. There was also much more movement within the ground. There wasn't this principle of home and away support. Now, people are much more capable. There are motorways now which make a journey, for instance, from Southampton to Newcastle, actually possible. It wasn't possible. No. When I saw, I can remember I had a trip from Leeds, where I was at university, to watch Leicester play Southampton in the Cup. It was a particularly eventful trip mm. in that we had a shattered windscreen, which later fell in, <laughs> and it then poured with rain all the way back. It's one of my great <laughs> memories. And we got a one all draw, thank goodness. Mm. Otherwise, the whole trip would have been. We left Leeds at 4 30 in the morning. The M1 had only just reached Leeds in those days. And certainly the road, once you came off the M1 to get down to Southampton, was dreadful. Anybody who remembers the old A43, A34, it was an awful road, a heck of a long way. So people couldn't do that other than in coaches. But coaches were very slow method of transport before motorways came in. I mean, for cup games, there was a huge difference in the away support for cup games, even more so than now, when there's legislation that you've got to give, is it 20%, something like that, to uh, offer it. Hence, you get Exeter sending 15,000 to Old Trafford and so on. But certainly in the 50s, Colin, and probably just into, well, well into the 1960s, it would be impossible if you were an Arsenal fan, to follow your team to Old Trafford, because you would almost certainly be working until noon on Saturday. Mm. It's a five and a half mm. day week. So there's absolutely no way, even if you could get on Mallard, the fastest train in the world, there was no way you could get to Old Trafford in time for the kickoff. There were completely different times. And you went to reserve games. Oh, yeah. And the reserves often had quite good sides. But that was the way of following the new kids who were coming through. But also the reserve team was full of proper players because you didn't have substitutes. So you would only have 12 players because there was a 12th man there in case of nausea or something. But there were no actual substitutes. So the 13th best player at your club, instead of being one of eight substitutes as he is now, would actually be playing for your reserves every week. And he was a good player. He was as good as, let's say, Scott McTominay would be at Manchester United now. There was the term at that point, he's being dropped into the stiffs. And of course, 
reserve crowds were half decent in those yeah. days. Yeah. There were better players and you saw the new players, the young players come in and so on. I can even remember going and watching the A-side yeah. on a Saturday morning at the train. And that would ground. be kids. They were kids, but there were one or two quite good players and, and one or two of them got quickly promoted. They used to go through from that fairly quickly into the first team. They had A-sides and B-sides as well as reserve side and first team, didn't well, they? Well, the Busby Babes started off as the A and B-sides, yeah. But I'll tell you a lovely story since we're on Manchester. Manchester United's first trophy under Matt Busby was the 1948 FA Cup after a classic final where they beat Blackpool 4-2. One of the heroes of that game was a player called Johnny Anderson. And he'd made his debut for the club after being there in the reserves week in, week out. A few weeks before the cup final, United had been at home and the reserves had been away to Leeds United. So Johnny Anderson, along with all the other reserves, got on the train to Leeds and they were changing trains. I think it was Huddersfield. There was an announcement with Mr. John Anderson from Manchester United, got off, went to the station master's office where Matt Busby said to him, come back, you're playing today. So he got off the reserves train went back to Old Trafford, made his debut, played well, and was still in the team for this Classic Cup final. Ended up with a winner's medal and scored a goal. A goal, incidentally, that has never been seen because Pathé News, who were the only people televising the 1948 Cup final, but 3-2, they ran out of film. So Johnny Anderson's long-range effort was never seen, even by him. It must be very hard for young people in inverted commas today to appreciate that kind of a story. They're surrounded by images. We've been quite fortunate in that we've seen both sides of the story. We've seen the times when there was no football on telly and we've seen when there's been too much football Mm. on telly, which is currently the case. And I'm just wondering how much television has influenced crowd behaviour. At the risk of (laughs) repeating what I said, Television has changed and continues to change absolutely everything. People are saying to me about the recent World Cup in Qatar that the experience of going to this World Cup is very, very different to other ones because there haven't been so many fans because of the cost travelling there. So a lot of these people are local, but because of television... They adopt one country or another. There are English fans who've never been in England. It is, and it's down to television. Simon Cooper, who writes interesting pieces, I always feel, on football, wrote a piece during that World Cup saying this was a World Cup that was actually completely a televised World Cup because everything's close together and the matches are all staggered. Let's not forget, all the matches were played at the same time in the 1966 World Mm. Cup. It's one of my great memories of being at Wembley for the England-Argentina quarter-final and a very bemused man going up on the scoreboard at Wembley, which was not mechanical, it was physical, Mm. and putting up the score, North Korea 3, Portugal (laughs) 0. There was a gasp and he turned to the crowd and went like that. But now everything's shaped for television. Do you think there would have been Mexican waves, Paddy, without without television? Is that a television spectacle? Would the, would the crowd have done that well, without knowing it was on telly? Probably not. I mean, the Mexican wave, I've... I... Completely not. That's why it's called the Mexican yeah. wave, because it started at the Mexico World yes, Cup. Yes, apparently it was borrowed from America, but of course all sport was already 
all top level sport in America had already been televised by then. So, yeah. Yes. Do you think football had a very bad time in the 80s? We know, I mean, in terms of crowds. So, I mean, there was a time also in the mid 80s because of this football, the crowd behavior, where television didn't want football anymore. It was off the air for, in the, I think it was 85, 86, or 84, 85. It was off the air from the beginning of the season until about January. There was not a deal done with, with the television companies. They thought they were paying too much. The Football League thought they were paying too little. And the result, there was no football on television at all. The world continued to revolve on its axis. And eventually, we have a situation in which we believe that football hooliganism has been sorted out. And yet, there are moments, like the, the Euro final a couple of years ago, where there was trouble around. There was trouble outside Wembley. There was trouble outside the Stade de France. There's always going to be trouble where there are crowds. Is this inevitable or is it not? Has the behaviour of people changed over the years that we've been watching the game? Yes. The fact is, the mid-1980s were the nadir. There were three incidents of which the Hazel atrocity was one. After that, a movement was begun among fans. I can remember a man called Rogan Taylor who founded the Football Supporters Association. The fanzine movement started an attempt to show that football could be lovely, you know, could be witty in the way that Colin and we tried to join in. But we then got to Hillsborough four years after Hazel. And the reconstruction of the stadiums that followed that, following the Taylor report, began this process to where we are now, where football is a game for everybody, even if you're a public school boy. And yeah, we're talking about it from a position of great comfort now. I think that process was long and slow, and you can see it in the crowds. The crowds are now back, not quite to the post-war boom when people after the Second World War wanted entertainment and football was one of the few available. The crowds were massive then. They'll never get back, I don't suppose, to that level. But they are now more than comparable with those of the mid-1960s when England were the world champions. If you followed City in the 70s and 80s, you went to the games, you would know a woman called oh, Helen. Oh, Helen. Helen with the bell. At Helen the, with the bell. At the, at the Black Lane end. Everybody yes. knew Helen the bell. But she was unique because she had a bell and unique almost because she was a woman. Has the nature of crowd behaviour changed, hopefully for the better? Because if you go to a football match now, there are far more women in crowds these days than there ever were when we were going to the games. I'm not sure about that. It could be. It's completely different class dimension now to what it is. That, to me, has made more of a difference than actually the female content. You know, girls do go from an early age now, and it's more acceptable, and girls play now as well. The whole thing has changed. Whether that's changed behaviour, I'm not sure. It's certainly made a difference to facilities. The uh, conveniences, as it were, in those days, and the, and the way the grounds were, women didn't really want to go. I don't think a lot of people wanted to go. I can remember being at Wembley Stadium, going at the gents at about the second level, and the whole place is swimming with urine. Oh, the world's biggest indoor urine lake. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It was terrible. My daughter loved going to football matches with me because unlike the West End Theatre, it was the only place you could go to the lavatory without a queue. <laughs> <laughs> that was then. This is now. But there wasn't 
when Francis Lee took over Manchester City, one of the things that, that he was triumphant about was he'd got the catering right, which was true. You could go to City and have a really decent pie or a lunch, and it was great. On the other hand, the football was terrible. <laughs> Is that the way, right way around? Do we not want the football right first? The catering and the facilities can wait until the team's worth watching. You learn some strange things when you become a director of a football club. I was, as people may know, briefly chairman of Leicester. And one of the things I learned, it was Leicester is the home of the pucker pie. And oh, yeah. we actually had a director who was a director of pucker pies. And from that, I learned the average number of pies per spectator was the highest at Rotherham. <laughs> you learn something every day. Have we changed in our attitude to football crowds? Inevitably, we are different people when we were age, age seven. Yeah. But, but there's also, you know, football's changed, we've changed. Have the crowds changed over and above the fact there are fewer flat caps, it's more middle class, it's more expensive... I worry about this because I feel, and I always felt this recently, that despite the gentility, there is an anger and a fierce hatred that goes beyond tribalism. That's true. I think that's got worse over the years, even as the toilets have got better. Let let me come out with a facile theory on that, Colin, because I I know exactly what you mean. The happiest modern fans I've ever seen are in Germany. I've been a couple of times to to games in Germany, and I'm thinking, why is everybody happy here, walking out of the game? And there's not a group that come out of the game, say, I'm going to tear up my season ticket or something. There isn't that level of sort of manic depressiveness that you get sometimes in English football. And it's not that the Germans don't love their football, but it's about a third of the price. The stakes are not so high. The feeling of welcome when you know that your club, and this is true of pretty well all of the clubs, including so-called money bags, Bayern, when you know that your club is making every effort to reward you for your loyalty by making the admission price so cheap that you can afford to buy beer and sausages. But they're owned by the fans. With one or two exceptions, most of the clubs are majority owned by the fans. That's true, 51%. But I think there's more to it than that. For example, at Borussia Dortmund, when I was there, you can find a more expensive ticket than anything you would find at Spurs or Arsenal. You know, there are horror stories about 100 quid for a seat. You can find one that's 120 in Germany, but that's for the Braun Sandwich Brigade. And they, in some clubs, the ones who can afford it, deliberately subsidise the ordinary boy and girl in the yellow wall. There's just a sort of fan friendliness that transmits to those fans. As I say, Colin, it's a facile judgment based yeah. on a, you know, two or three visits. You're allowed that facility. Final question to you both. We have all, at some part of our lives, sat in a director's box and we've all, at some point in our lives, sat in the press box. And we've all mostly been fans and sat with everybody else or stood with everybody else. Do you see a game differently from the press box, Paddy? John, do you see the game differently from the director's box, from what the crowd sees? Is it a different game? It's a weird question, but no, I, thought, I thought it might be quite it's interesting. It's not. But now that I'm a fan, I'm coming out of uh, Fulham, 
as I'm walking towards Hammersmith or Putney stations, I find myself thinking, what intro would I write on a story like that? And it flows. I have absolute clarity about that game. I remember all the goals. I remember all the assists. And I remember, all, you know, I'm able to give a wonderful flowing summary in my little head as I'm walking to Hammersmith Station. And yet, when I was a journalist watching it carefully with notes and all that, the game would end and I would feel I have not a clue what's going on here. The pressure. It's so yeah. much more enjoyable. John, you've sat in the Leicester City box and you've looked at the crowd coming through the gates and you start thinking about how much are we making this? There must be a financial element to your thinking apart from what happens when they kick off. Yeah, there was. I only became chairman because the club went into administration. I mean, I often say that I'm the only person probably at Leicester who's stood on the old terraces, been to both grounds, been to... Now, four FA Cup finals, four League Cup finals, edited the programme, edited the club magazine, done the PA at the crowd, reported on the match for the local newspaper and for the local radio station, and been a director. I've done a lot. I mean, there's one or two bits I do remember. I was chairman, we got promoted. The game that took us up, I can remember... And at the end of that, I broke my rule about going to see the manager straight after the game, which is a privilege he got, which I specifically said when I was chairman, I wasn't going to do that. You know, I've been in players' rooms after games. I've seen all sorts of sides of the football club. You know, the worst thing about being a director of a club is you have to actually pretend to be pleasant <laughs> to the opposition directors, who may have included such people as Ken Bates. You know, how on earth? Could anyone be pleasant to Ken Bates? Yes, that's a good thing about being a fan, is you don't have that awful moment where you've been beaten 1-0 at home and have to go and be nice to the opposition directors, yes. That is of a dire experience, you know. I thought your boys played awfully well. Yes. I hate you. You're a dirty, filthy lot. And as far as I'm concerned, your right winger can go and stuff himself. I did get... I got one wonderful bit. We played at Coventry when I was chairman. With about 10 minutes to go... Your old friend Mike Summerby's son came on, Nicky, as a sub for us. And the Coventry crowd went berserk. It was hostile berserk. In the boardroom afterwards, one of their directors came up to me and said, that is a complete disgrace. What's a disgrace? And he said, you brought that chap on. You should have told the manager he could not bring him on. <laughs> Who are you referring to? That Summerby, he broke the our left back's leg three years ago. I said, listen, I've not been chairman that long, but I do know one or two things. And one thing I do know is I do not tell the manager who he can or cannot pick. Nicky Summer is quite an inoffensive bloke, really. It was obviously an accident. With Nicky yeah. Summer, it would have been an accident. With Mike, it might yeah. have been something. If it had been his father, it would not have been an accident. <laughs> At this point, gentlemen, I want to say thank you as usual. It's brought back a lot of memories. I think we've, we, I think we've trodden interesting byways down this topic of crowds so until next time it's me colin schindler saying thank you very much for listening to football brew in my life and it's goodbye from paddy barkley and it's goodbye from john holmes and from me colin schindler until next time goodbye you can let us know what you think about football ruin my life by emailing us at 
footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.